Hello and welcome to the next episode of Pharmacast, the official podcast of the School of Pharmacy at Queen's University Belfast. Uh, my name is Dan Corbett, I'm a senior lecturer in digital education here at the school and I'm delighted to have a few special guests with us today for the first in our research theme of podcasts uh, within Pharmacast, talking about COVID, surprisingly uh, enough. So I'm joined by three very esteemed members of, of academic staff from um, the Medicine, Health and Life Sciences faculty two of whom um, have their home in the School of Pharmacy, uh, Dr. Vanessa Brown from the Centre for Experimental Medicine, Professor Michael Tunney from the School of Pharmacy and Dr. Judy Gilpin um, from the School of Pharmacy as well. So before we get into talking about the LAMP Lab and all the testing that you've done, dear, do you maybe start with yourself if you just want to introduce yourself, talk a little bit about what you did at school, what your research focuses commonly and more usually on? Sure, yeah, so um, I'm Deirdre Gilpin, I'm a senior lecturer here in the school and um, together with Michael and Vanessa we're all kind of working in the field of chronic respiratory infections and that has been our focus in, for many years, looking at cystic fibrosis and bronchiectasis and I suppose that's what kind of brought us into the realm of, of COVID when it appeared because there was another lovely infection of the lungs um, so that's uh, really how, how we all know each other and we've all worked together for a number of years. Good stuff. Vanessa, what do you have? Yeah, so I head up a clinical trials group based within the university, specifically within the School of Medicine. So again, looking pretty much around the um, area of respiratory medicine, although we obviously have started to branch into more fields lately um, in early phase clinical trials. Um, so we work with a lot of academics across the university as well as other companies outside, so small biotech companies and larger pharma companies across the globe. Good stuff. Michael, yourself? So I'm, I'm Michael Tunney, I'm based in the School of Pharmacy also, and I suppose the major focus of our research, as, as Deirdre mentioned, is the improved detection and treatment of chronic respiratory infection. And so therefore it was a natural, whenever COVID came along as a respiratory infection, we were asked to, to get involved and, and started doing some work in this area. Great stuff. So yeah, the, the real focus of the podcast today is really to talk about the LAMP Lab and the story behind that and all of the work that you, you've all done on that. So I guess to get into that, we'll set the scene. We're back 2020, I guess. Um, Deirdre, can you talk a little bit about why you were all asked to get involved in this project, where the project came from in terms of LAMP and the, the, the testing involved as well? Yeah, so uh, I think you have to kind of transport yourself back to what it was like in those last few months of 2019 when we knew something was looming on the horizon and then particularly kind of January of 2020 um, we knew that the colleagues in the NHS lab and, and the Royal and the Regional Virology Lab were starting to look at this new um, new new virus that was, was coming our way and um, I suppose we were all just kind of had an academic interest in it to begin with and then as things started to look a bit more serious you know, I remember having conversations with our colleagues, you know, Dr. Tanya <coughs> Curran in, in the RVL and saying, you know, are things looking a bit bleak, Tanya? And she was saying, well, you know, those conversations went from being, well, yeah, I think we've got it under control to, you know, we've done 20 samples today and we're really excited about that to actually we might need to borrow some equipment and maybe some people. And so we kind of very quickly, I think, had an idea that we would be involved in something in some way. And then I suppose after lockdown came and after we had all uh, been sent home, um, those conversations became to be a bit more serious and um, and actually probably get to begin with completely surreal. And each meeting seemed to be a bit more surreal than the last one um, until eventually we got to a meeting where it was, well, you know, we've gone through kind of multiple iterations of what equipment can we 
you know, share with colleagues and what reagents can we share to actually, can you design a completely new diagnostic test for uh, SARS-CoV-2, which didn't use any of the reagents that were currently being used in the PCR test. And so really to sit down and try and design a test from scratch. So that was when we started to then kind of really think about all the different ways that we could test for a virus. Um, and uh, one of them was using this kind of what at the, t- at the time was quite older technology um, called LAMP technology. And um, that was really when we started to try and think, well, can we build this kit? Can we put it together? Is that going to be an acceptable IVD standard of test Um, and then around that time we started to think as well about well is there a way that we can do this not using nose and throat swabs is there a saliva based method that we could think about using which would be obviously we remember all those nose and throat swabs which were so horrific at the time and is there a way that we could do that and and really we started off thinking well actually the big issue as we were all sitting at home with kids trying to homeschool is how can we make it safe for kids to go back to school and can we get them doing saliva tests um, and so that all kind of came together with a company that then produced uh, an in vitro diagnostics um, saliva based lamp assay and uh, we thought that that might be a good idea to try and see if we could use that. Um, so at that point then we had to put into place some big plans to see if it actually worked and we were all involved in, in trying to put that together and trying to make a, um, a clinical study using, uh, you know, to compare against the, the gold standard, which at that stage was nose and throat PCR and try and compare that with our saliva-based lamp test. Sure. Okay. So, look, obviously, I think one thing with COVID, particularly at that time, was that there were lots of opportunities in lots of different areas where you could have all been involved in testing and treatment and management clinically as well. Um, The drivers for all of you getting involved in this particular area of research, Michael, I guess, maybe we could start with you on this in terms of what really got your focus on this particular project? Where did that all come from? Yeah, well, I suppose initially we were asked to set up the, the lab to test NHS staff um, because they're obviously trying to keep those people in work and keep also prevent hospital-acquired COVID. Um, but then we quickly realised there was a major problem around children, particularly in, in children who were clinically extremely vulnerable um, in special schools. And it was very clear from the first lockdown that after that lockdown, very few or quite a high percentage of the children were not going back to school because their parents particularly were worried. Um, I had a very strong personal involvement in this and in that my niece was at a special school and was clinically extremely vulnerable. And I seen the, the pressure and stress it put on my sister and her husband to the point where they literally did not go out the door um, and they certainly weren't letting her go back to school. So at that point then, we were approached actually by colleagues in the in the Department of Health as to whether or not we could try and set this up for special schools. And we started doing that, I think it was just about December, November, December 2020. We, we'd done a pilot school in, a, uh, in Dungannon. In Dungannon, Sparenview. Uh, view in Dungannon. I think one of Dermot's well. colleagues, <laughs> one of your friends would die to collect the samples yeah. because we, there was nobody to do it. And we started testing samples there. And when they realised that we could actually logistically do it, then the idea was, well, actually, could we rule this out across all of the special schools in Northern Ireland, which was, at the time, it seemed a daunting prospect, but 
you know, within sort of two, three months, we had it up and running right across every special school. I think to, it was a hugely daunting prospect because we have no um, patient information management system. Mm. And obviously we don't want to see, you know, we want the samples to be anonymised. Yeah. So I think without Vanessa's input, yeah. as we like to call her Betty Barcode, and yeah. setting up <laughs> all our barcodes, I mean, that was really an outstanding piece of work that Vanessa and her, her team set up um, you know, to try and make it possible to receive the samples in the lab. Vanessa, it'd be great to hear a bit more about that in terms of making this work, because I think that's something that people will appreciate and find quite interesting, which is, you know, that's a, a giant task, which is managing all those samples across schools, across lots of geographical locations. So now is probably a great time for you to talk a little bit about your involvement in the project and, yeah, the, the barcode system that's given <laughs> I you don't like, I don't like my name being, being mentioned too many times, um, referred to as uh, Betty Barcode, but we'll go with it for this for this podcast. Um, so as Deirdre says, we, you know, myself and Michael and Deirdre have worked very, very closely over a quite a number of years and so they're familiar and aware of exactly what we do in terms of delivering a clinical trial service um, in terms of a testing um, a provision for a lot of um, academics and, and industry as well. So we have a lot of procedures already in place that are required in a very regulated environment. So we work within a what's called a GCLP laboratory, so a good clinical laboratory practice. And it requires a number of regulations to be adhered to. Um, and we've developed this lab over the course of eight, nearly actually nearly nine years at this point. So we have a fairly well-oiled kind of machine in terms of how we deliver the service. So when it came to this, we thought it's going to require a pretty much similar procedures and operational aspect as what we were currently doing. So it felt right for us to kind of come on board to be able to deliver the requirements of this particular study um, and obviously expand on what we've doing. But, but in essence, it was very similar to what we generally have as our daily operational kind of procedures. So it wasn't that big of a kind of task in terms of developing that. Obviously, it was on a larger scale. And, and you know, in terms of the sample numbers, we would never deal with sample numbers are testing on a daily basis that was required for this particular study so that aspect maybe challenges challenged us a little bit um but i think that's where we kind of came on board to kind of provide that support for the management and the day-to-day operations to deliver um this particular service and make sure that it was on time and within the quality aspects that are required um, so that's where that that's where our, our we um, kind of joined up with with Deirdre and Michael um, and tried to make this you know a success from a very early stage and we had quite a t- tight turnaround mm, time yeah. to get this lab set up. Oh, it wasn't something that we had months and months to recruit people and set it up and optimize our procedures and our lab layout as 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 you would if you were um, you know setting up a new lab. So it was quite a Quite a, a, a tight a task. task yeah. Yes, it took about six weeks from the the us yeah. actually identifying the building okay. to the lab being fully functional. So it went from sort of early November to just before Christmas in, in twenty twenty. The lab was fully functional, ready to go. Fully functional, as in delivering sample results, validated sample results. So it wasn't just like we could use the lab; it was we could deliver. It, it was properly functional, and and it was. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, part of the the big issue at the beginning was just dealing with the equipment coming in because there was just equipment coming left, right, and centre. We had rooms. You know, I don't think we'll ever see anything like it. Just rooms full of boxes of tips that we then realised didn't fit any pipettes that we had. You know, there was a lot of. Uh, 
stock management that I think was not certainly in my area of expertise. <laughs> so uh, it was uh, a challenge trying to cope with all that and trying to keep a, an eye on reagents and, and sure. make sure we had enough to do all the different tests. So, I mean, that's something I'm keen to explore a little bit more because we kind of gone from announcements coming out about lockdowns and everybody stays in their houses and, you know, we're allowed 200 metres outside to go for a walk and that's it. So how did you take this from that and being on Teams calls and Zoom calls to having labs in the NBC, having tips arriving? What are the logistics of that in terms of getting people involved and making this work? Well, and also all of us have families at home. So we were doing this against a background of homeschooling. Yeah. Um, So it was absolutely wild you know <laughs> it really was wild and you know the number of teams calls that you were doing while trying to wrangle a child in the corner was it was it, it was real yeah. it was a really really stressful time I have to say and um it was it was very challenging and then so to, actually to come into work sometimes was was quite nice <laughs> you know to get away from yeah yeah and I think we quickly I suppose employed staff yeah but invariably there was at least one of us in every day and one of the three of us in and we worked very closely with the estates team and Stephen Duffield and a few other people there to to sort of get the estate sorted but once we had staff in place then we had a team of staff you know so we started off with about eight or ten eight to ten staff and then once they were on the ground but there was a lot of training to be done and, and everybody had to be signed off on all the procedures before we actually started doing things. But I think very quickly we realised there needed to be one of us on the ground most days just to troubleshoot and see what was going on. Um, so as Deirdre said, it was quite nice coming into work at that point because you were getting out of that the sort of confines of your house. Sure. And so what was the process for the lamp lab? Because as we were talking about a little bit earlier before we, we pressed record, say, for example, you want to run these tests, you want to test a certain number of individuals. How was that happening here at the NBC site? How are we managing that? And, and what would have happened to a, an average person coming down and doing that testing? I suppose maybe if we started off with the the Stramelis testing site and we can... Vanessa, you would be best placed to describe that. I think. Oh, I don't. I don't know how I'm even going to start that. Those di- those days are a bit of a blur. Um, but yeah, we we started off then as Deirdre had mentioned earlier on. We wanted to validate this or cross-reference this with the gold standard PCR. So we obviously had to collect quite a significant number of um, samples from, I guess, symptomatic. Um, people at that point who were coming down to sites across Belfast and we decided because of the proximity we were going to locate ourselves down at the site of the PEC and we were going to collect some samples hopefully that people would donate a, a sa- sample that we could also use for comparison purposes because obviously they were going in for their um, for their standard routine you know PCR mm-hmm. um, um, swab so we collected over the course of Oh, now it's numbers. I think we were possibly there for nearly a week, a week maybe 10 yeah. days, um, hopefully, hopefully trying to increase our numbers over weekends, thinking that there would be a lot more people coming in over weekends. So I think we did extend slightly more than we had anticipated. So we were down there for about 10 days um, in the tent in very, very, very cold. Windy. Windy. Windy <laughs> very windy. Um, but people were very, very kind and generous. And we, you know, we obviously collected... I need to refer, refresh to Michael or Dare Do. I think it was numbers. a thousand. I think it was about yeah, a couple of thousand, I think. Yeah. yeah. 2,000 samples. So we had matched samples then from their nose and throat swab okay. and then a saliva sample right, okay. on leaving. Two saliva samples sometimes as well. Yeah. Yeah, if we could get that. So that then all had to be processed. So as soon as we were collecting the samples, 
uh, from the the testing site in the morning. Those would come back to the lab, mm-hmm. and we would have the results of those via the lamp. The, usually the next day, okay. so it was quite a uh, a large, uh, very quick turnaround, and allowed us to validate that you know the samples quite well, wow. and quite nicely. And so that then moved from the Stramilla site to the MBC site. Is that right? So how were things working here? How were things different? I guess volume is, is one thing that was different, right? So at that point then, I think the initial plan was that it would be NHS samples, you know, asymptomatic testing of NHS staff. But that was, for various reasons, that was kind of harder to get off the ground. And that, that was when uh, we were approached by the Department of Education, who really saw a very rapid need to get this in place. Um, and then the big challenge was, how do we get the samples to the NBC? at Queen's and uh, one of the the great joys of this whole work was working with so many different people from so many different backgrounds and one of the people one of the groups of people that we worked with then were the yellow bus drivers the Department of Educational bus drivers who obviously weren't working for mainstream schools at that time were only working for special schools because they were the only schools that were back in and so they were then tasked to go around and collect all these samples so had you been on the NBC at that time <laughs> it would have been a constant stream okay. of yellow buses <laughs> coming to the lab in the Hammerhead and uh, so the logistics trans- the logistics manager for the Department of Education became really a constant speed dial <laughs> okay. and uh, these, these would come you know, often with one or two sample bags then. Okay. And so that's how the samples got to us. And the samples got to them because we put together kits which basically contained the, the collection tubes okay. and an information leaflet. And then those were sent out to all the schools. And then when the kids, the ch- children or their parents or their teachers produced the saliva sample, they put that in a bag and it was bar- in a barcoded bag and then it came back in. And the other, obviously, area was that we really didn't want to know who these people were, so all the samples were anonymised. Okay. And the, the Education Authority to be very quickly put together an IT system that allowed us to upload our results, and then they could see where there was a positive sample, and that fed back to the principal in the school same day that actually a sample had tested positive, oh. and then they were obviously to, able to initiate an intervention and, and get that member of staff or child out of the school and, and form their families and, and do all those aspects of it but they did very very well they put together an IT system you know within two to three weeks that worked across all the special schools in Northern Ireland. But do you remember how crazy the whole kit situation was because yes. we just say that very blithely like we had we sent out kits yeah it all sounds very easy yeah <laughs> but in the in the first place mm. we didn't have anybody to do the kits for us mm. so we were taking kits boxes of t- of uh, tubes and um the filter paper and the bags home and just getting people in our family to do the kits and the barcodes and everything it was crazy i production lines lines in everybody's house and then we could distribute them then to the schools to the various schools but there were I mean we could be doing thousands upon thousands a week just to make sure ensure that they had enough because sometimes they did them at home sometimes they might do them back in the school so we had to make sure that we had plenty full for for every school every week because they were testing on different days in fact I was moving house in the summer and I find a little box of the absorbent tissues (laughs) (laughs) and I felt quite nostalgic actually So how the, the lab here, obviously you're doing those that, that volume of, of numbers, we'll talk a little bit more um, later in terms of, of the impact of all of this. So what was, 
how busy was the lab in terms of process and how many people were there? What if you could describe the lab to, you know, someone listening to this podcast, how would you how would you paint that with words in terms of what you would see if you walked into the lab at any particular time? So I think the first thing you see is a lot of bags, a lot of sample bags, you know, that just the, the there's 40 schools that were doing um, the taking part in this the sampling and each of them had a sample bag. So when one would arrive in, one would be collected. So that would probably be the first thing. And then you would move into the room where the saliva's saliva would be deactivated and, and transferred into the reagent tube. So lots of hoods, um, class two hoods. Um, and then but really, you know, there would be a lot of um, there would be a lot of busyness at different places along the production line, if you imagine, as as the samples move through that. Um, but it really depends on uh, really depended on how how things were going. Sometimes there would be a wee bit of a panic at a particular point. Um, and uh, but but you know, really towards the end of it, just a very calm production line of samples being received and passed through um, lots of uh, lots of equipment that looked largely the same because it's quite a straightforward process mm-hmm. but a very controlled methodical step from from step to step along the process okay so yeah sort of very busy production line type approach to get this done yeah I think we were quite fortunate because we had quite a large space within the hammerhead in the MBC and I think it was you know we could separate out our activities accordingly so obviously as Deirdre said they would come into sample receipt and they would potentially contain active virus at that point and then we would have a separate section for a deactivation of the virus um, and then further downstream so we were able to define and delineate all our activities in relatively large laboratories mm-hmm. and everybody so in terms of you know working during COVID times we had space we had a busy team and a busy lab but we had a large enough space that not only could we separate our activities we could keep personnel at a safe distance also um so yeah i think it worked it de- generally was a great facility for us i can't think of anywhere else locally mm. within this site that might have worked equally as well so i think that was uh, definitely played to our advantage in terms of delivering our service and we also had the advantage that all our staff could test um you know at least well most staff tested two three times a week okay. um first thing they done in the morning when they came in was do a saliva sample for themselves <laughs> so we we could clearly know that there was no and several times we had people tested positive and they but they were tested positive and knew within a half an hour an hour of coming in yeah. so they were gone yeah. so we had no cross um infection of our staff which worked really well so that was a big advantage to actually been doing the testing on site so Everybody that worked in the lab knew that they, they would usually test on a Monday morning and some people would have tested, you know, Wednesday morning, Friday morning um, just to be safe and to make sure that they weren't putting anyone else at risk. Yeah, because there's all those considerations of keeping everybody working in the lab safe and then also what happens if there's an outbreak and you have to shut the whole thing down and the impact of that. So, yeah, being able to use your own technology to test yourselves to then yeah, keep everything running is obviously pretty critical. And then any positives that we got as a result of testing, those had to be taken over to the Royal okay. and they re- redid the testing on their PCR right. just to make sure that we had a double confirmation. Sure. Um, I suppose we're not an accredited diagnostic lab, so that allowed us to just absolutely confirm that it was a, a positive. So we're really fortunate. It was always a bit of a you know, waiting for the the um, output to come through from the Royal. It was like, oh, please let this be positive. <laughs> you know, yeah. please let it be positive. But yeah. So... Okay. There's obviously a huge amount to work in it. You know, I, I can only imagine how busy you all were working on this. I guess the one thing that kind of really helps to 
to kind of tell the story of this is the impact of it um, and the numbers behind what the impact was. Um, we've talked a little bit about this before we started recording the podcast and it'd be good, I think, to, to focus on that a little bit. So in terms of those numbers, in terms of the impact of this, I guess, what was that, you know, from a numbers perspective? Um, you know, if we could go into some detail on that in terms of the workload and, and the, the output of that, it would be, it'd be great to know a bit more. When we were sort of up and running in the schools, we were testing on average about three to three and a half thousand samples per week. So we were averaging about 700 samples a day. Um, and so in the schools project, we tested over 80,000 samples well. uh, across the period. So we tested both staff, pupils, and then during school terms. And also we done some testing in one of the summer of 2020. Um, we also tested, no, it would have been 2021, we tested kids going to summer schemes from the special schools. Okay. Um, so we actually done a survey where we got feedback from the staff and pupils at the end of the first year with the Education Authority. And, and the, the general message was that both staff and particularly parents of, ki- of children really thought that the service allowed them to go to school because they, sure. they felt yeah. safe knowing that everybody was being tested. Yeah. We did pick up a number of positives. Um, results and that was then fed back to the schools and, and in nearly every single case there was no symptoms these were all asymptomatic okay, positives yeah. um, because obviously if a child in a special school had any symptoms they weren't going in so right, yeah, the, right. the, the, the yeah. positives were all asymptomatic positives and nobody would have known that they were positive which was obviously putting other children in the class at risk and also children in their families so uh, from that perspective it made a big difference and a lot of the parents the kids went back to school who hadn't been at school before and stayed at school right through to we stopped doing testing. The other quite useful thing about the LAMP test is that it's um, it's kind of it picks people up at a different stage of infection than the PCR tested and I think that was a learning as we moved through the, the pandemic. PCR positive, p- people tended to stay PCR positive for a number of weeks after their symptoms had resolved yeah. and after there was infectious virus present whereas the LAMP uh, the, you know, the detection by LAMP seemed to be in that pre-symptomatic phase and then after the peak of infection when there was very little infectious virus there, mm-hmm. the LAMP test was negative. Okay. So it actually helped particularly maybe more so in the NHS side of it, you know, where people were wondering about coming back to work yeah. post um, post testing positive, you know, and so that there was there was quite a kind of a suppose an intended outcome, you know, we could say that somebody might still be PCR positive, but they were lamp negative, so the likelihood of them having infectious virus was very low, sure. um, then they could they could safely be back on the ward, so that was quite useful yeah. as well. It's great in terms of impact. Yeah. Um, and what about in terms of people? So there was obviously a lot of people working in the labs in terms of, of the throughput and, and that production line we were talking about earlier. They've obviously gained quite a lot of expertise and knowledge from doing that. Um, where are they now? Are they still in Queens? Are they working on other research projects? Have they gone on to, to other things? Do we know where they've moved on to? We do. <laughs> Various places, to be honest, but you're absolutely right. I think they've been exposed to situations or experience that they would yeah. never have ordinarily been exposed to. We got a lot of people from various backgrounds um, and obviously we're, we're pretty much thrown in at the deep end and and had to uh, learn quite quickly on the job. There was obviously training, you know, that was um, validated and, and um, properly kind of signed off before they actually did anything. But, you know, they got exposure to an experience that they wouldn't have probably had um, previously so I think that set them up to then you know to think about other areas maybe if that was something that they wanted to continue on or perhaps go back into a research area so we we employed probably over the course of I want to say a year and a half probably close to 18 20 people 
um, over the course and they've gone on to some have gone back into work in research um, but a lot of them we have re- 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 um, we've ho- held on to somewhere across the university um, some have you know had other plans anyway yeah. and when they came to us they, it was maybe a short-term thing so some people you know were only there for quite a short period of time but I think most of the people have have stayed within the university and um, perhaps you know use those skills over that time that they were in the lamp lab and put them to good use in in whatever capacity they're in now. I know some people are working within back with De- in Deirdre's environment where she is and Michael also has some um, some staff members that we would have had in the lamp lab working in a in a research environment now um, and a couple of people you know that worked with me pretty much more in the kind of quality side of things, have used that skill set to go on and actually, you know, apply that in an area that they actually always wanted and it gave them that opportunity. So there's been a few people who've been very thankful of having that opportunity, but it's great to provide that employment yeah, within absolutely. I mean, we, we did provide an incredible amount of um, employment for for some some very you know some young people who are just maybe coming out of university as well who who you know at that time during COVID there wasn't a huge amount of opportunities mm-hmm. there weren't many yeah. jobs on the horizon so I think people COVID testing was probably one of the biggest employer whatever in whatever um, yeah. environment that might be whether it was our environment or, or elsewhere. But they were also trained to a very high level you know Absolutely. so they. They got to see how a, a lab was properly run and everything had to be signed off and everything was following protocols because otherwise we couldn't stand over our results. So yeah. in a very short period of time, they, they received an awful lot of really, really useful training, which has, has stood to them wherever they went. And as Vanessa said, quite a few of them are now working in labs and, and they've just got that. They just know what to do now yeah. because of the training they received. And we now have, uh, I suppose before COVID, a few people might have known what LAMP was, but it wasn't a big mm-hmm. thing. But actually, there's been a renewed interest in, in it as a diagnostic test because it's uh, something that can be used point of care or close to point of care. And I think uh, we now have a, a group of people who who know the difficulties associated with the test and, and, and the pitfalls. And I think that will hopefully now, as we go forward, start to reignite an interest on the, in using it to detect other things. Because it really, when it works well... It's a very rapid, very quick way of, of testing for some of these big pathogens that we want to look for. So that's actually touched on something that I, I kind of wanted to ask about, maybe just to, to wrap the conversation up in terms of future directions for this. Um, are you all involved in other projects that use the same technology? Is there anything there that you want to talk a little bit more about in terms of how we can take your experience from all of this and move it into maybe the detection of other diseases as well? So we're still wanting to have our lab in a van um, during one of the more bonkers meetings that we had. <laughs> they were talking about having a, a, a lamp testing facility on the back of a van, which they were going to call the Vandemic. And we've never really lost sight of that. But I think, uh, you know, that's a really exciting opportunity that you could do with lamp test. A lot of the lamp testing machines are actually battery powered and portable. There's no requirement for um, very sophisticated extraction techniques. So maybe is there a way that we could bring the testing closer to point of care? There is already some lamp technology used in, for example, um, the uh, uh, kids ED emergency departments for things like meningitis but you know there's maybe another kind of roles for other pathogens and I think we'd be very keen to look into to some of those now that we have the kit we don't yet have the van but we're working on that <laughs> working on the van
great stuff. So like, yeah, I think it's a fantastic story of ingenuity and innovation and sheer effort over COVID. So thanks very much to all three of you for taking some time today to, to talk to me about it. Um, I think all that leaves for me to do is to thank Deirdre, Vanessa and Michael for coming along and speaking a little bit about their experience. Um, we'll provide some additional links um, within the, the podcast description um, for, for the podcast today to learn a little bit more about the likes of the Lamp Lab and some other um, COVID research projects that the university and the School of Pharmacy has been involved in. Um, and you can read those at your leisure. So thanks very much again um, to Deirdre, to Vanessa and to Michael for joining me today and for all of you listening uh, to the podcast thanks very much for now